welcome to the Animal Rescue Podcast, which you always wanted to know but didn't know who to ask. I'm your host, Keisha Ferrand. My guest this week is Elaine Rosen, the Executive Director of Dog Lodge Sanctuary. Elaine and I chat about the work she's doing with Dog Lodge, the types of dogs they set out to support, and she even has tips for those who would like to start their own dog sanctuary. You can learn more about Dog Lodge at www.doglodge.org and on social media at Dog Lodge TX on Instagram and at Dog Lodge Sanctuary on Facebook. Go ahead. All right. Good morning. Thank you so much, Elaine, for joining me on the Animal Rescue Podcast. My pleasure, Keisha. Good morning to you. I am really excited to talk to you. I think the work that you're doing with senior dogs and dogs with extra maybe disabilities or limitations or health issues um, is fantastic. And it's an area in the rescue world that I think needs a little bit more attention. There's no doubt about that. Um, Living in the state of Texas and working in the animal welfare community, one comes to understand very quickly um, the difficulties that we have with um, the rescue of all kinds of animals, not just dogs. The battle that I picked to be involved in, of course, is just dogs, but it extends much farther than that. I don't even know what the exact number is anymore of dogs that are homeless in this state. Um, They become homeless because uh, they've been dumped um, out in the country or on the streets of Houston or any other metropolitan area. They um, have been surrendered to shelters um, and shelters are trying to get them rehomed. Um, in one way or another, they've become involved with a rescue and the rescues are desperately trying to rehome these animals. There's definitely a tendency for people to want to adopt the puppies, the cute, cuddly little dogs, the adult dogs that are still on the young end of the spectrum. There is a huge problem, a significant problem, rehoming senior dogs let alone senior dogs that we consider special needs dogs, dogs that have medical issues. So that's where we fit in. And in this state, boy, it's a huge problem. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm here in Alabama and um, I've been told that puppies when they're under 12 weeks are easier to adopt. But once they hit that 12 week mark, People think they're too old, which is so ridiculous. You know, it's true. And yeah, well, let's let's go back to the basics of the problem in this country. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, you if you took a cross section of the population, I think you would find a significant number of people who actually appreciate animals, mm-hmm. who appreciate what it is to own an animal. Almost, there are people, believe it or not, that would take issue with my terminology of owning an animal. Yes. I it should be that way. Okay. But yeah. we'll, we'll just, you know, shorten this up by saying people who really appreciate what it is to own an animal, to take care of that, quote, pet properly and understand the commitment involved in taking on that responsibility. It's not a short-term thing. It shouldn't be a short-term thing. I mean, we don't start a family and have our kids and then they get to a certain age and we just dump them. Right. They're not, you know, we don't they're, go, they're, we don't go out, they're yeah. walking now yeah. and they're, it's, they're out of that cute yeah. phase. Time to go. Oh, did I lose you, Elaine?
Are you there? Yes. Sorry, I think Zoom crashed and was glitching and having its having. <laughs> oh so, my goodness! Yes. All right. Where do you want to pick up? Um. So we left off at um or on my end um. You don't just abandon children once they get past a certain point. So why would you do it to animals? Yeah, so if we break down, again, if we break down the population, you're going to find people that understand the responsibility and commitment of owning. And, and just for purposes of, of our conversation, let's just limit this to dogs. It'll be a little bit easier. They don't understand that commitment. Um, and they're all too ready to abandon an animal when the dog is no longer cute and cuddly or when it becomes a senior and starts to um uh show a lot of these senior issues um you know the arthritic conditions the loss of vision um and a bunch of the other stuff that we see so um it's a big problem it's a really really big problem and so when those dogs end up in a rescue or in a shelter many many times they are overlooked for adoption People don't want to start with an older dog. And I'm grossly generalizing here. Yeah. There are people who are absolutely devoted to getting a senior dog. They don't want anything but a senior dog because right. believe it or not, irrespective of the medical issues that you become involved with, a lot of times the senior dogs are already housebroken. You don't have to go through that. They are much quieter than getting a younger dog they want to sleep they may want to go for a walk and they want to be a companion yes they still have all the love in the world to give mm -hmm. so um unfortunately it's difficult to find those people who you know who will step up and take these dogs and there's a whole lot more senior dogs than there are adopters yeah so what led you to founding the dog lodge. <clears throat> I had always been involved in rescue. I did it on my own. I could never drive by a stray. Um, and so I was given to stopping, working until I was able to get hold of the dog. Um, and then making sure that you know didn't have a collar and nobody was looking for it and if that was indeed the situation I took it home I would start working with that dog um and of course it wasn't just senior dogs it was all dogs at, at that stage this was years ago and I would start putting a little bit of training on them and making sure that they were healthy and then I would look to rehome the dog and when the dog was rehomed, I'd go find another one. And that just was a cycle that repeated itself over many years. And then one day, I was blessed to find myself in a position where I could make a greater commitment. Um, and it became a matter of finding out where I wanted to fit into the animal welfare community. I know that I didn't want to run a rescue because what I didn't want to get into full time was adoptions yes um admittedly i am really type a <laughs> which means <laughs> you better do it as well as i do it or you can't have the dog <laughs> right? yeah yeah uh, which makes it which makes it really difficult to, to adopt dogs out it it would actually be the right way of doing it in fact i'm very familiar with um a couple of different uh, rescues in the houston area um, one is a German Shepherd rescue and one is a pug rescue, actually. And you have to cut off your right arm and your left foot in order to get one of their dogs. Yeah. They do extensive background checks. They talk with veterinarian, the veterinarian that, yes. you know, these people are associated with. They look at financial records. They go and do site visits. And what's really interesting is there are a lot of people that object to this. So they just don't go to those rescues for dogs. But the yeah. people that go there and qualify to get a dog, 
end up keeping the dogs, right. their rate of return is very, very low. Yeah. I made the decision not to do a rescue, which meant that I needed to look around for some other way that I could contribute. I did extensive investigation. I traveled around the country actually for about a year, meeting with people who'd been in the trenches way longer than I had. And what I found was that the missing link seemed to be the sanctuary. Okay, yeah. why? Well, look, we have a system in place in this country to theoretically at least handle dogs that need to be rehomed. The problem is the system is broken. It's not broken because people don't care. It's broken because there's not enough money and there are not enough people to handle the volume of animals that need to go through the system. So the system breaks down. Theoretically, if a dog is on the street, animal control should be able to go pick up the dog, take it to a shelter, Hopefully a rescue would tag the dog and the dog would get adopted or the rescue would run their adoption program and the dogs would get adopted. They can't keep up with the numbers. Mm -mm. It's staggering. Now there are states in this country where the situation is not nearly so bad. Right. I'm not personally familiar with what goes on in Alabama, but you're just as South as we are. And I'll tell you, it's, it's a huge problem in Texas yeah, um, and in other states. Yeah. From what I've heard about Texas, I feel like Alabama is very similar. It could be. It could be. I'm, I just have not actually looked at the numbers. Yeah. So I hesitate to make that kind of correlation. Right. Um, yeah. But there are other states like Massachusetts, New Hampshire, some of the eastern seaboard. They do it right there. Yeah. And for some reason, people have a different attitude up there towards what it is to own a pet. Okay, so I got the idea of doing sanctuary. And from there, that was, I started, actually started doing everything in 2014. I'm going to tell you, Keisha, if I were to do it again, I would do it totally differently. How so? Well, let's start with how you started and then how you would do it differently. Okay, the first thing I did was set up a 501c3. Yeah. And I got approved amazingly quickly. Amazingly quickly. It took eight weeks to get my approval from the IRS. Wow. I had my board of four people to start. But then I started doing the planning for dog lunch. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to run it out of my home. I wanted Dog Lodge to have its very own facility. And so then I went looking for property, took three years to find a piece of property. And all of that time, if anybody's familiar with what it is to direct a 501c3, you understand that the clock starts ticking the minute you get approval from the IRS. And there are deadlines that you have to meet. Um, and the magic deadline, the first deadline is five years. Then you have to start showing um, your not-for-profit, you know, income status and, and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So I went looking for a piece of property. Then we found the property and I started building the, the facility. It took two years to get the facility built. Wow. I didn't get my doors open until the end of 2017. Wow. Okay. And the first thing I said was, oh my God, what happens if everybody thinks this is a stupid idea? Nobody wants to give us any dogs. Yeah. That lasted for about two minutes. <laughs> right. And then I couldn't keep up with the number of requests. Okay. How would I do it differently? Yeah. We didn't start our fundraising until we opened our doors. Oh. If I were to do it again, if I could start all over again, I would go find the land, I would build the facility, I would deepen the depth of the board. I had a great board, but I would have added 
significant people to the board, yeah. I would have started our fundraising and then I would have started bringing in dogs. Yeah. Here's the issue when you're running a sanctuary and this is what's really important because if you look at it through eyes that are governed by only passion, you're going to get into trouble. Yeah. And I'm going to tell you, it's been an uphill battle. I, I will not lie and say it's been a bed of roses. We've done phenomenal work and we do great things for our dogs. We provide a permanent home for them. We provide the best food, the best meds, the best veterinary care, and more love and attention than they can probably stand, actually. Yeah. These dogs are alone only for a few hours overnight. My, I've got a five-woman staff. Um, every one of these women thinks that every one of the dogs is her personal dog. The, the love and care that they give and take for those dogs is incredible. And most of these dogs are coming out of shelter. We have two dogs that have come out of private homes where they were actually really loved and well cared for, but they became infirmed and their owners were just not able to take care of them. Yeah. And so they asked if we would pick up on that care and we said, absolutely. The rest of the dogs have either come from um, directly from a shelter or via a rescue. Um, and many of them have never known the life that they have now. Yeah. They've just never had that part of their background experience. Yeah. That's what I would have done. I would, uh, let me tell you, it is expensive. Oh, I bet. It's not. Yeah. It, we have, um, several dogs who are with permanent fosters. Those are dogs that right now don't have any medical concerns. Um, they're basically just old. I've got two in Guthrie, Oklahoma, two in Oklahoma City. I've got dogs in Fort Worth that live with permanent fosters. I've got um, dogs in Navasota that live with, these are all places in Texas. Oh, yeah. um, that, well, the, obviously the Oklahoma cities are not <laughs> in Texas, but right. the rest of them the rest of them are in Texas. Um, and the rest of my foster, foster dogs are in Houston, in the Houston area with foster families. That is a contractual arrangement that we set up because of space considerations. Mm -hmm. So the dogs that we have that are actually residing in the sanctuary are true hospice cases. The other dogs are old. Um, they may have some med medical concerns, but they're not they're not hospice care, okay? Yeah. Um, the contractual arrangement is that the hospice family will keep them for the rest of their lives. If something happens to the foster, the dog has to come back to us at Dog Lodge. I pay their vet care, which includes medication. The foster family pays for everything else. If they wanna, you know, if they've got a little lady who's a tiny little chihuahua and she, the, the foster family wants to put a little tutu on her. That's fine. Just A, don't tell me about it because I don't like dressing up dogs. But B, that's your expense, not mine. Right. <laughs> but but my agreement for them, their consideration and their equal care, those dogs get the same kind of care that the dogs at Dog Lodge do um, and the same love and, you know, the great food and all the vet care that they need. I pay for the vet for the medical care. Yeah, uh, I pay it directly to the veterinarian, not to the foster family. That's yeah. my way of keeping tabs on everything that's yeah. going on. As a matter of fact, I'm currently looking for some medical fosters now. Um, I'm having to turn dogs away. Yeah. I'm having to turn dogs away. Keisha, I get between 50 and 100 requests to take dogs a week. Oh. Cut off 50%. Um, for requests to take dogs that do not meet our criteria. Wow. I had to stop taking dogs over 25 pounds because I just don't have the room. Mm -hmm. I can accommodate so many more dogs if I keep it 25 pounds and under. Yeah. Um, but there's, you know, a limited um, number of dogs that I can take. 
and maintain an environment that offers quality of life. And I will not be untrue to our mission. Yeah, I will not. Um, what does that answer your question? Yes, it mm -hmm. does. So what do the facilities look like? I mean, are the dogs, do they interact with each other? Are they isolated? Yes. Are they like, no, no. Is no, are let me tell you spaces set up like little mini apartments or like, how does all that work? Yeah, actually you're, you're pretty spot on there. Oh. What I decided and what I discussed with the original builder was providing what I call a real life environment for these dogs. In other words, give them as close to what my eight dogs have living in the house with me that I could give them without actually having all of them in the house. Yeah. Um, and so there are two buildings each and they're connected by a breezeway. The each building is um, um, 40 by 60. And um, the first building is what I call the work building. It is a 26 by 60 foot long um, combined exercise training and therapy room. Um, it's completely lined with mirror. Our floors are six step epoxy floors, non-slip for dogs mm -hmm. um, that are completely impervious to anything because we run our facility virtually like a hospital. Yeah. When you have a population of sick animals, you got to keep the upper hand on your environment. Uh, down one side of that building is our grooming room, our laundry room, our sanctuary office, um, a um, um, uh, bathroom facility here human bathroom facility <laughs> and then there's a, there's a storage room and then our food med prep room which i call the dog kitchen and our food storage room if you go through all all of the doors are vestibule doors that means there's an inner door and then you go through a vestibule to the outer door that's a safety issue yeah um our rule is you don't um come in the interior door until the exterior door is already closed yeah uh, every once in a while you get a dog that likes to try and get out um not because they're not happy with where they are but that's what they're used to being able to do right and so this prevents any kind of escape um and then uh when you're going in so when you're going in the interior door doesn't open until the exterior door is closed and exactly the opposite when you're leaving the building. Yeah. Then if you walk through the breezeway, you enter the second building, which is what I call the um, dog housing building. Down the side wall and across one end, we have individual rooms. They actually look a little bit like a stall. If you've ever been in a, in a uh, stable area. Yeah like a really high class stable area. Yeah. Um, okay, so I I'm a horse person too. So I designed them a little bit like stalls. The ones that run down the length of the room are eight by eight. And the ones that run the width of, the, of this building are uh, five by five. The five by five, I have uh, three medium sized dogs left. All the other small uh, dogs are small dogs. So each of the medium-sized dogs has his or her own room. That room is for sleeping and for eating only. The rest of the time, the dogs all commingle. How do you do that successfully? Like because of the way I do my intake. We have an intake protocol. Okay. I don't take any dogs that have aggression issues. That's aggression towards people or other animals. I can't take a dog like that. Yeah. There are there are rescues that handle dogs that have aggression issues. Yeah. I will direct those people to those organizations. Mm -hmm. Um, when I was taking large dogs, we did behavioral analyses on these dogs before the dogs came in because, well, as an example, we took a dog from the Montgomery County Animal Shelter, that's Montgomery, Texas, Animal Shelter, who is a 117-pound Mastador. Before I brought him in, I needed to make sure he wasn't going to 
eat our chihuahuas. Yeah. Okay. Um, and he was just fine. He didn't care about any other dogs. He was just happy to be in a place where he had room to spread out. And believe me, he needed it. Yeah. Um, and then when you're dealing with the little dogs, you have to make sure that a big dog like Maximilian wasn't going to just scare the ever loving, yeah. you know, fixings out of them. Yeah. Um, that's how you work. So you, everything that we do at Dog Lodge has a protocol. We have a medical protocol. We have an intake protocol. We have a nutritional protocol. Everything has a protocol. And the wow. only way that you can work successfully. Go yeah. ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, how did you develop your what protocols? We have a veterinarian who has been my animal's veterinarian for about 20 years. He is on our board of directors. And that's his contribution. That and huge discounts for medical care. Yeah. Um, he does all of our intake dogs. So for obvious reasons, when I've made a decision that this dog meets our intake protocol, that dog can't come into, especially if it's coming out of a shelter, it can't come directly into dog lodge. Yeah. It has to go to clinic first. And we do in-depth medical evaluations on our dogs. That includes full body x-rays, wow. scans, complete panel blood work, not just CBCs. Yeah. We do complete panel blood work that gets sent out to an outside lab for total reads. Yeah. We need to make sure that we're not bringing a sick dog into dog lodge because in a population of senior ailing dogs, that's going to spread like wildfire. Oh, for sure. That dog has to quarantine 10 days. On the end of our, what I call dog living room, and it really is a living room, in mm -hmm. the, we've got a big flat screen TV on the, this is where the, the room where the dogs spend the night yeah. and where they eat their meals. We've got sofas and chairs, and I've walked in there sometimes to see the dogs on the furniture and the volunteers sitting on the floor. So <laughs> everything is dog food. Everything was designed so that these dogs just could be as comfortable as they wanted to be. Yeah. Um, but when you walk out the end door of that building, you walk into a clinic. I envisioned being able to bring a vet on staff. Yeah, that's a lot more difficult and a lot more expensive than one would think. Yeah, and honestly, our dogs, um, um, Stephen Frontfield with um, Animal and Bird Clinic in Sugarland, Texas, is our is our sanctuary veterinarian, and he takes such good care of these dogs um, that there really wasn't very much for an on-site veterinarian to do. That and the added um, issue of not being able to afford a veterinarian at this time means that the dogs quarantine for the first two or three days at Dr. Frontfield's clinic. Then they come to our clinic to finish their, their not their evaluation, their um, quarantine. And as long as nothing rears its ugly head medically, then we do our integration following our integration protocol. And that's a very slow process that we go through. Although it's really interesting, Keisha, as the years have gone by, our core group of dogs, some of whom have been with us since you know the beginning of 2018, have become so unaffected by a new arrival mm -hmm. that they just look and say, oh, a new dog, okay, hi. And they just go about what they're doing. Yeah. The other thing that I think is a little different um, when you think about a facility is to build yards. I did not build dog runs. Again, my home does not have dog runs for my dogs. I happen to, this property is 60 acres. So oh. I've got a, yeah, and I live on the property. Okay. So when I, the house got built, I built a two acre backyard. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did at Dog Lodge, only it's not two acres. It's just about an acre and a half fenced. It's divided into a small yard and a large dog, a large yard. There are oak trees in there and it's all grassed and it's beautiful and they can see the deer on the property and the squirrels play with them. It's just like living 
in a private home. Yeah. And they all go out there together. Now, I've got several dogs who are blind. One, because her eyes were surgically removed. Mm-hmm. Another, because she was living out on the street. Um, her name is Winnie. And um, she'd been living on the street for so long that her hair matted up over her eyes and it sealed one eye shut. Oh. And the hair grew to such an extent that her eyelashes got matted and her she couldn't blink. Oh. And the bottom line was that she's completely blind now. Yeah. Um, and I've got another dog whose vision is also impaired. Um, and so... Um, and then the newest arrival is a little three and a half pound chihuahua. <laughs> All these dogs are on our website at www.doglodge.org. You can see them all. Um, she's just too cute by half. And she at three and a half pounds is too little to allow into the group of bigger dogs, not because they're going to deliberately do damage to her, but right. if they take off after a squirrel, they'll just run right over her and short right. break. So we have um, an area in the large yard um, that's kind of, uh, it's a portable fence type of thing. It's about 36 inches tall and it's about 12 feet across and she can go in there and walk around to her heart's content and be safe. So we accommodate all of them, but that's how we manage it. It's part of our intake protocol to do a behavioral analysis and make sure that these dogs, even when the honeymoon is over, are going to pack well. Yeah. And it's been very successful. We've been lucky so far. Yeah. Been very lucky. How many dogs do you have on your property right now? In-house, my numbers are very low right now. In-house, I have 10. Okay. And I actually have more dogs with fosters. Okay. Um, and um, the reason that... Uh, my numbers are lower is because I've just lost a number of dogs. I had a very sad summer. Yeah. Um, and everybody is still healing from that. You know, one of the questions that I get asked, and actually my employees get asked even more than I, is how do you do what you do? Mm-hmm. How do you bring a dog? again that may only have a month or two months or three months left you're constantly having to say goodbye to dogs yeah it's true and i'm with every dog at the end no dog is going to die alone yeah that happens way too often everywhere else in our organization they're going to be in my arms um and you have to protect yourself emotionally. Yeah. And the way we do that is by remembering what we were able to give that dog while he or she was alive. That, but for my staff, that dog would never have known. Right. And then we all sit around and we tell stories about the dog. It's almost like having a celebration of that dog's life, even though we may only have had that dog for a short period of time. Every dog's got funny stories to talk about. Let me tell right. you, these dogs are hoot. Old dogs are just funny. Yeah. Um, and, and there hasn't been one dog that we have had come through our doors that hasn't had a personality a mile long um and it leads to some really funny stories sometimes you know maximilian that big 117 pound dog yeah was so in love with one of our volunteers he <gasps> knew her car now he was like having a pony yeah he ran you could hear him and you better not have your back to him because you're yeah. on the ground <laughs> he, he just wanted to play all the time Aww. playing with a 117 pound mastodor yeah you know you've got to be careful he would see Cheryl driving in to the property and he would start bouncing and jumping. I don't know if you know horses really well, but when you turn horses out loose in pasture, sometimes they cavort is the best word I can think of. 
you know, it's the running and, the, and that's, that's what he would do. Yeah. And, oh my goodness. Um, and, and, um, unfortunately he was just so sick when he came to us. Actually, when he came, the vets thought we would have him for about six weeks. Oh, and we just started. Yeah. We just, well, okay. His history was really interesting. He went into the Montgomery County shelter when he was about a year old and somebody, a family adopted him and they kept him for nine years. Wow. And then he started developing all of these horrible problems. And trust me, this is one time when I really understood and sympathized with the family who surrendered him back to the same shelter. Yeah. So they knew the dog. They called us immediately and said, please, this dog isn't going to live for very long. Please let him have, don't, don't let him go here. Yeah. And so we went through and made sure that he was okay and blah, blah, blah. And then our vet just started picking away at the issues and they were horrible. This dog was allergic to everything, including food. It, there is no way that you could have managed this dog in a private home unless you had a vet tech in there around the clock helping. Yeah. We were set up to manage that kind of a thing. And the bottom line is when the vets came, when the vets took a look at him and started analyzing, they said about six weeks. <clears throat> and um, about a month and a half after that, um, congestive heart failure. Oh. And so I loaded him into the van and rushed him to one of our emergency hospitals because it happened to be a Sunday and our clinic wasn't open. And they admitted him and treated him and released him the next day with, I can't even begin to remember how much medication there was. <gasps> and the instructions to me were, you can never let him get excited. You yes. can never let him be loose. You've got to keep him on leash. You have to walk him slowly. And that's it. And again, a dog of his size, I would be very surprised, Elaine, if he lasted longer than about four to six weeks. Mm. Took him home. I met with my staff. I told them the story. I went two days later, and there was Maximilian in the yard on a leash with one of my employees. And I looked at him and that dog was so depressed. Yes. I couldn't stand it. Mm -hmm. I walked outside and I said, take him off the leash. And she said, but, but they said, I said, look, I know what they said. I understand what they said. And they're right. Yeah. Everything they told me was what you do with a dog in congestive heart failure. Yeah. Our job is not to keep this dog alive at any cost our job is to give this dog the best quality of life we can yeah. for whatever time he has left if he's going to drop dead let him at least drop dead having fun playing yeah. not being totally depressed on the end of a leash yeah he lived for two and a half years oh <gasps> wow he lived not because we're a bunch of geniuses over here. <laughs> he lived because the vet care was unending and totally dedicated. When Dr. Fronfield works on something, he works on something. Yeah. We always kept in mind that our mission is the central key to our mission is quality of life. And again, not keeping alive a dog at all costs so yeah. that they're miserable. Keeping them alive with quality, happiness, okay? And you do that by just, you know, working on it. And if he had died playing, we would have been okay with that. Yeah. But he didn't. As it turned out, what happened was, so in and amongst the problems that he had, um, he had severe stenosis of the spine, 
and being a big dog, and he really was the size of a pony, uh, being a, a really big dog, that weight plays havoc with spinal issues. Yeah. And one of the things, of course, Dr. Fronfield is also my mentor when it comes to medical issues. Um, and uh, he told me, he said, his spine is not going to last forever. And he said, I'm going to tell you right now, this is not a dog that's a candidate for a wheelchair. We have another dog who had lesions on her spinal cord and she is confined to a wheelchair when when she goes for walks and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Maximilian could not have survived in a wheelchair. Yeah. Um, and he said, this is not a dog that you're going to be able to keep if he loses the use of his hind end. And ultimately two and a half years later, that was what got him. Yeah. I walked in, I got a call from one of my staff and um, I walked in to find him in the exercise room, lying on a, a big, huge pallet that we have. And a pallet is what we call this. It's in one of the corners and, um, and it is um, a rug and it's covered by towels, layers of towels to make it really, really, really soft. Yeah. And then washable pee pads over that. Yeah. Some of our dogs are incontinent. And he was lying on there. It was his favorite place to go lie when he was in the exercise room. And he couldn't stand. He couldn't oh. get up. And so I called the clinic and I told them I was coming down. And it took three of us to get him in the van. Yeah. Um, and... Everybody came. I called all the staff that weren't working and said, if you want to come and say goodbye to Maximilian, you need to come now. Mm -hmm. And everybody came. Yeah. And they spent almost two hours with him, crying over him and hugging him and just being with him. And of course, he just loved the attention. Yeah. And then we loaded him up and I took him to the clinic and we said goodbye. That was a hard one because he just, he was one that, shoot, as big as he was, his personality was even bigger. Yes. So I went back to the clinic afterwards and we all sat and we all cried and we all told stories and we all helped us, you know, each other get through the morning process. Yeah. And then you have to let go. Right. You just have to let go. And that's what we did. So um that's how we get through it and that's how we do what we do i am so proud of the women who and grateful yeah grateful to the women who work at dog lodge um they have dedicated themselves um to our mission mm -hmm. and we are only as good anybody any organization any business is only as good as its weakest link Mm -hmm. And I'm going to tell you honestly, from the bottom of my heart, I don't have a weak link down there. <sighs> Everybody pulls their weight. Everybody does everything they can for all of the dogs. Everybody does everything they can possibly do to be part of, you know, the quintessential well-oiled machine. Um, they work as a team and that's what's necessary because yeah. we overlap. So our doors open at uh, five o'clock in the morning. That's when my first person comes to work. Yeah. And we don't close until nine, nine thirty, ten, ten thirty. Depends on what's going on. Yeah. And they work in eight-hour shifts, but there's overlap. Mm -hmm. Um. And the communication that goes between the shifts, um, and the overlap and you know, morning staff and evening staff and afternoon staff is really, really important. Mm -hmm. If there were problems at breakfast, then both overlap and afternoon shift need to know what those problems were. I have a little seizure dog. That's the dog I was telling you about has lost her sight because she was living on the street and she oh, was yes. in such physical. Yeah. So we brought her in. She's from Waco, Texas, which is kind of northwest of Houston. Okay. And animal control had picked her up and the shelter there reached out to us and said, look, this is not a dog that we're going to be able to adopt out. We're so loaded with adoptable dogs. 
Yeah. Please, can you help us with this dog? And they sent me video of her. I couldn't get up there to do a behavioral thing. So they sent me video of her with all different sizes of other dogs and everything. And I said, I'll come and get her. Yeah. So I drove out to Waco and I picked her up and she came back, took her directly to the clinic in Sugarland. And the vet called me the next morning and said, you've got yourself a little seizure dog here. Oh, and she's only about 16 pounds. She looks like a Maltese yeah. mix. And he said, yeah, she threw a seizure last, you know, last night, blah, blah, blah. And so we were prepared for that. Yeah. Well, the issue is figuring there's not, she's not an epileptic. Epilepsy is like a disease of rule out. She's not an epileptic dog. Um, what we don't know is whether the seizures are neurologic or whether she has a brain tumor. And the only way you can really kind of define that is by doing an MRI, which is really, 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 really expensive. Mm -hmm. And even if I knew the cause of these seizures, there's nothing I could do about it. If right. it's a tumor, she's 15 years old. We're not going to do surgery on her. Right. So we have to manage the seizures and that's what we do. She's on four different seizure medications, zanisamide, levetiracetam, phenobarbital, and gabapentin. Wow. And we've had to adjust the medications. Her seizures have gotten really ugly. They're really scary to watch. Yeah. All we can do for her is to make sure that she's in her enclosure um, so that she doesn't hurt herself. Yeah. Um, and her enclosure is something that we can re the enclosure is something that we put um, in the exercise room um, so that she can be in there with all the other dogs, but be safe. Yeah. And uh, it's got bumpers around it, like a crib almost, you know, what crib bumpers yeah. look like. Yep. Well, I bought, I actually bought two, the, the enclosure is uh, circular. It's about uh, 36 inches tall so that we can reach over it. Mm -hmm. And it's completely, it's all plastic, okay, so that she can't hurt, since it's not wire, she can't hurt herself. Yeah. And um, we've got the floor padded and then covered with, again, the washable pee pads, so that it's a nice soft place. And then we've got a dog bed in there if she chooses to sleep in the dog bed. Yeah. But if she has a seizure, every time she's had a seizure, she's been in an area where we can quickly get her into her enclosure because you cannot physically hold them. Right. And, and try and stop the seizing, so to speak. Right. Um, that's frightening for them, but they have gotten very loud and um, she's had seizures as long as four minutes long. Wow. So we've had to up her medications there are ways that the vets calculate dosages by weight. Uh, we're maxed out on levetiracetam and zanisamide, but we have a little bit of wiggle room um, on the phenobarbital. Here's the trick, and it, it, it will come into play with her. Phenobarbital is a really interesting medication because it's metabolized by the liver. And therefore it gets broken down um if you get to certain levels it can have the tendency to render the dog almost comatose wow so here's the trick is that being a dog if she's like out of it completely right is that quality of life even if we stop the seizures so we're trying to find a balance that keeps her being able to be a dog right but, but either significantly reduces the frequency and severity of the seizure, if not wipes them out completely. Yeah. Um, it's a it's a really tricky balance. Yeah. Um, but you know that's something our veterinarian um, takes very seriously, and um, so we're working. These are the kinds of things that we deal with where we're at. Yeah. These are the kinds of things that would be, in many cases, um, issues that may not be dealt with well in a private home, unless you have 
somebody who's willing to be a quote medical um, caretaker for a dog because right. it does require that. So we see all kinds of really, really interesting stuff. All, we had a little girl that came in. Her name was Cleo. She actually came from New Mexico with her family and they moved to Dallas. They'd had her for all of her life. And then obviously medical issues started up and they surrendered her to a shelter. Yeah. The shelter reached out to um, a rescue group here in Houston and that rescue group got in touch with me. They went and actually got her. She was tiny, tiny, tiny. Uh, not as tiny as our smallest dog, but she was only about six pounds. Wow. She looked like um, almost like a silky terrier, but tiny. And she had interesting cataracts. Actually, they weren't typical cataracts at all. They looked like discs over the pupil. Oh, wow. She could, yeah, she could see peripherally, but mm -hmm. she couldn't see straight ahead of her. Anyway, she came into us and this little girl, <laughs> everything that went on with her was just totally bizarre. First of all, she was diabetic. Um, and so insulin shots were part of her regime every day. Secondly, she ate like a horse no. and never put on a pound. Yeah. Never put on a pound. Um, and trust me, she became a she-devil at mealtime, <laughs> an absolute she-devil. As a matter of fact, we couldn't feed her in the main room. We ended up having to feed her in the exercise room because her behavior was so upsetting to the other dogs. Oh, no. Because she screamed at mealtime yeah. until she got fed. Um, and then she was fine. Yeah. But we just kept her separate, and that way it was peaceful and quiet, you know, in, in the other room. And then... She went out with all the other dogs and she just kind of moseyed around. But then she developed a situation with worms. And what was really interesting is at the beginning, we couldn't identify the worms. And it turned out they were not worms that use a dog as a host. Oh, weird. Yeah, we ended up calling them space worms. They were, um, <laughs> they were bizarre. Yeah, it ended up that they were horned worms, and I, 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 nobody understands where they came from. We ended up believing that they came with her when she came from Dallas, and had probably been in her for a little while, but they were, I'm not going to go into any detail. Suffice it to say they were totally bizarre. Yeah. We ended up being able to um, treat her for them. Um, and it was, like I said, they end the our vet ended up sending them to Cornell. Oh, wow. um, to the yeah, to the vet school there because they couldn't believe that they were coming out of a dog and we said oh yeah here they are and I, we collected four of them and sent them up there and wow. um yeah yeah their vet school went nuts when they saw them so yeah we get all kinds of really interesting situations that that arise there yeah and um yeah, it's been interesting. So I, I'm going to tell you what, this is another thing that I love about Dr. Fraunfield. Not only does he mentor me in decision-making processes, but he uses everything as an opportunity to teach. Yeah. I have learned more in the past, since 2018, in the past five years, than I knew collectively from all the years that I've had dogs and I've had dogs for a hundred years. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, you can't help if you want to, you can't help but learn when you right. own animals if you right. want to, right? Some people can care less. I always want to learn more. 
But in the past five years, we've had such weird situations come in and it's just been a fascinating study. Absolutely fascinating. Yeah. So well, that's what, that's the kind of thing to deal with. Yes. Well, Elaine, yeah. I honestly, I could listen to your stories all day long. They, <laughs> like they're so interesting and the cases you encounter are no one could imagine. I mean, horned worms in a dog. Though yeah. it's just so yeah. fascinating. Um, but I do know that we do need to wrap this up because I'm sure <laughs> listeners are like, okay, on to the next thing, right? So yep, yep, is there, is there something that you really wish that people out there knew about the work that you're doing about, um, you know, hospice fostering or senior dogs or special needs dogs? Like what do you wish that more people knew? We need more sanctuaries in this country. Yeah. We need more people who are, are dedicated to senior and senior special needs dogs, or for that matter, even puppy and adult dogs that have special needs. Yeah. Um, there just are not enough. There are some really, really, really good um, facilities out there. There are people who have dedicated their lives to doing this, but not enough for the numbers that exist. Yeah. If, if there were any wish that I could see come true, it would be that um, more people could figure out how to get the funding um, to, to start a sanctuary and take in these dogs with the idea of providing a home for them for the rest of their lives. Yeah. That would be my wish. There are too many dogs that die in this country so sadly. Mm -hmm. So sadly. I was going to say unnecessarily until you understand the circumstances. Right. You just, you know, the facilities that exist just don't have the capacity to manage all of the numbers. Right. So that would be my wish. That would be my wish. Yeah. Well, Elaine, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And I, I love learning more about Dog Lodge and the work that you're doing. I think this is, I mean, I want to say niche, but it shouldn't be a niche thing. It should be more commonplace. So hopefully people listening um, get inspired to either sign up as a foster or just get involved more with senior and special needs rescue. If anybody is even remotely interested in finding out, or if they have their own questions that they'd like answered, they can reach me at Elaine R at doglodge.org. That's E L A I N E R at doglodge.org. That's my personal uh, dog lodge uh, email. Um, I would be more than delighted to talk with anybody um, about how to go about setting it up and learning from <laughs> learning from the mistakes that I've <laughs> made, you know, would be beneficial to circumvent making mistakes that don't need to be made. Yeah. Um, and I would be more than delighted to spend whatever time with those people uh, that they would require. It would be my pleasure to do that. Absolutely. And Keisha, I want to tell you, thank you very much Yeah. Um, for what you're doing. Um, your podcasts are um, really um, uh, so wide ranging mm -hmm. and so interesting to listen to. I am actually grateful and honored that you even considered you know, getting in touch with me to talk about Dog Lodge. Thank you very, very much. Oh. And I certainly wish you the very best of luck, continued success with what you're doing. It's really necessary and you do such a good job at it. Thank you. Oh, thank, thank you. you so much. I appreciate that. I really do. And I, I do appreciate the time that you're spending. Um, so yes, thank you. You take good care. <laughs> thank you. You too.
Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe. If you have ideas for future guests, please email me at theanimalrescuepodcast at gmail.com or follow me at theanimalrescuepod on Instagram.